Hello guys, welcome to this episode of Little Brains Big Topics, the best podcast in the observable universe. Yeah, I'm serious about that. Um, in this episode, we have Richard Wrangham. Very fascinating interview. I fully encourage all of you to watch till the end. Um, and yeah, also, first of all, reminder, if you haven't subscribed on YouTube or if you don't follow us on whatever podcast platform you're listening on, please make sure to do that right now. Um, and yeah, leave us a positive review on iTunes as well, if you don't mind. Um, right, so I'll I'll read to you who Richard Rangham is, the topics we cover, and then we'll jump right into the interview. So Richard Rangham is an English anthropologist and primatologist. His research and writing have involved ape behavior, human evolution, violence, and cooking. Two of his most prominent books are Catching Fire and The Goodness Paradox. The links to both of those can, can be found in the description of this episode. Um, so some of the topics we cover are biological anthropology, what makes humans unique, we cover importance of fire at making us human, uh, use of fire at increasing our brain size and how our biology is dependent on our culture. We discuss what makes Homo sapiens unique. We talk about Homo erectus and Neanderthals as well. Uh, we discuss the difference between roles of men and women in hunter-gatherer societies relationships in hunter-gatherer societies, why all human societies have been patriarchal and the possibility of having matriarchal societies. We, and finally, we discuss whether Professor Rangham has said anything controversial in the past. We'll, we'll discuss all of those in this episode of Little Brains Big Topics. Just a few reminders that for any suggestions uh, if you have for future episodes you can find us at big underline topics um and we have patreon the links to patreon can be found found in the description of this video as well uh hope you guys enjoy the episode could you tell us about what anthropologists do and the challenges you have in trying to understand our ancestors well, I'm a biological anthropologist, and um, I think of that as covering uh, the, the story of how we got here, uh, how, how humans ended up on Earth. Uh, so that engages paleontology, uh, archaeology, uh, the direct evidence about our ancestry. Um, it engages uh, an understanding of um, primates, uh, our closest living relatives, uh, in order to work out uh, what similarities we have with them and what differences, and uh, either way, how the similarities or differences came to be. And it involves studies of living people. And um, the studies of living people uh, can be all sorts of things, but uh, one of the most fascinating is where we have evidence about the hunting and gathering way of life, which is something that uh, our ancestors had until 
agriculture uh, something like 10,000 years ago. And then, of course, this, this uh, three-way um, examination of uh, our ancestry uh, through direct evidence, through comparative evidence with primates and through living peoples um, is uh, amplified or, or uh, is made possible uh, through all sorts of different techniques. Uh, you know, a very important one this century being genetics um, and, uh, and all sorts of other studies of the biological systems. And uh, what do you think makes humans different from other animals? So, and by humans, I'm referring to the homo, the homo chain, not necessarily the sapiens. So, so homo as a genus. As the genus, yes. The genus, so homo sapiens, homo is the genus, sapiens is the species. And uh, homo sapiens is somewhere around a quarter of a million years old. Uh, people are now pushing it a little bit further back into the 300,000s. Um, the Homo genus, uh, which includes all sorts of other species as well, um, that goes back about two million years. And so your question is, uh, what makes us human in the sense of what makes Homo different? And the description, I mean, the, the sort of simplest way to think about it is that all the members of the genus Homo were like humans in uh, being uh, bipedal, standing upright, uh, being poor climbers, uh, having arms that uh, are uh, not nearly as good as those of chimpanzees and being able to hang from branches or climb rapidly. So we have the basic size and shape that would allow you to walk down the high street of any town and pop into a clothing store and uh, find clothes off the peg. Uh, what makes Homo in terms of our behavior? Um, it's uh, hard to know exactly about the behavior of Homo erectus, of course, which is the, the first full member of the genus Homo about 1.9 million years ago. But uh, the general expectation is that uh, given the size of their brains and uh, the evidence that we can put together, uh, they were hunting, they were gathering, they were living in uh, small social groups, uh, a bit like the social groups of hunters and gatherers that we see uh, nowadays. And so obviously Homo erectus were around for a long time, weren't they? Yeah. Yep, until um, uh, something like 100,000 years ago. Wow. So they, they did pretty well for themselves. Homo erectus flourished, absolutely. Uh, they, they were in um, Africa was where they started. Uh, but then they, within a very short time, they got to Indonesia. So there were records of Homo erectus in Indonesia 1.8 million years ago. Wow. So they were there within 100,000 years. Wow. Um, and uh, particularly in East Asia, they stayed there for a long time. I can't remember exactly when they uh, died out. I, I said 100,000 years ago. Uh, I think it's about that time um, when uh, Homo sapiens uh, uh, reached uh, those parts. And uh, that was Homo sapiens reached there something like um, uh, 50, 50 or 60,000 years ago. 
So homorexis Homo is very uh, successful indeed. That's right. Uh, did they coexist with humans at any time, homo erect, with sapiens? Yes, any- absolutely. They, they, they coexisted. Um, so sapiens, you know, say if you call sapiens starting 300,000 years ago, uh, then uh, for uh, something like 200,000 years, uh, they coexisted. They didn't coexist in the same place. Right. So coexisted so, in time, not in place. In time, that's right. So at that point, uh, Erectus was in the east, in Southeast Asia, and uh, Sapiens uh, was in Africa and making repeated ventures into uh, what we now think of as the Middle East, and then eventually Europe. Um, and do we know of any... Uh, so? So Homo erectus, I guess, coexisted with Neanderthals and Denisovans as well. Yes. Uh, so Neanderthals broke off from uh, the line uh, with Sapiens um, something uh, maybe 600,000 years ago, that sort of thing. Right. So uh, they descended from Homo erectus, Neanderthals. I, most people would would say that they descended from Homo heidelbergensis. So Erectus gave rise in Africa to heidelbergensis. That is a, uh, a form with a slightly bigger brain, um, a sl- small changes in the skull, uh, that you see evidence of uh, around 600 to 800,000 years ago. And most people would say that that Heidelbergensis gave rise to two forms, sapiens within Africa and Neanderthals, which uh, went into Europe. And how much do we know about all these different species of humans? Do we know how they, uh, did they have language? Did they have culture? Did they have religion? How did they, uh, what groups did they divide themselves into? Do we know any of those things about them? We know a lot less about their behavior than we do about their relationships, their phylogeny, their evolutionary relationship. Um, and of course, uh, language is one of the great puzzles. Uh, it's very difficult to, to find any way that gives you a clear indication of how much language uh, any population, any species had. Uh, so the short answer is we don't know. And there are people who think that relatively full-blown language goes back maybe all, even all the way to Homo erectus. And there are other people who think it's much more recent. Uh, I'm, I'm one of the people who think that full-blown language is much more recent. Uh, I think it began with sapiens, and I think it accounts for the evolution of sapiens. Um, but uh, but then we don't know. With regard to culture, the material forms of culture... Um, Sapiens and Neanderthals were in many ways very similar. So you see a lot of of things that Neanderthals did that were very similar to what Sapiens did, particularly with regard to the use of stone tools and to some extent with with bone tools and a little bit of evidence of uh, art. The thing about Neanderthals is that uh, although the record for Neanderthals is pretty good in terms of their bones, 
the frequency with which they are showing evidence of sapiens-like culture tends to be rather low. So there's something that just seems a little bit different. Now, again, you know, there's, you've got some people who say that there's basically no difference culturally between Neanderthals and sapiens, based on the fact that a lot of the kinds of tools that are left behind by sapiens can be found occasionally with Neanderthals. There are others who will point to the differences and say sapiens was clearly much more um, uh, elaborate uh, in terms of their culture uh, than Neanderthals. Prior to those two, when you go back to, um, to uh, Heidelbergensis and Erectus, then things are simpler. Right, if you go prior, further back enough, yeah. then you know for a fact... Well, yes, I mean, so the stone tools that uh, Heidelbergensis we, was using uh, were, were clearly of an earlier um, level of sophistication. Uh, so they did not have the Lavalois technique that seems particularly important. And actually, you know, the Lavalois technique does not really seem to have been uh, used, I think, by Neanderthals either. Uh, so that, that was something that's very much associated with sapiens, a technique where uh, you can uh, reconstruct that what the people are doing is looking at a stone and imagining the tools that you're going to be able to get out right from the middle of it and chipping away at it in order to get out what's in the middle rather than just hitting it and hoping that something useful comes off. So in other words, you know, very well-anticipated approach to obtaining their, their tools. Another thing that's very different about sapiens is that uh, there are no indications in uh, Neanderthals of arrowheads. Uh, so uh, it's only with sapiens that you get an indication of actually any kind of projectile weapon, things that, that you can imagine being flung through the air so through a distance. And that would give sapiens great advantages in terms of efficiency of hunting, whether using literally bows and arrows or using spear throwers, uh, an atlatl. Do you know what that is? A, it's kind of a, a tool that gives a mechanical advantage to using a spear. A uh, bit of wood where you can hook the base of the spear into it and then throw, and it'll give great uh, additional force to, to the, the spear thrust. So these are things that would have given them uh, sapiens advantage in, in um, hunting, but presumably also in aggression against members of either their own species or another species, such as Neanderthals. And would you uh, attribute high intelligence to, well, we know you've written a book on cooking and intelligence. Um, so that book is about uh, the the humans, isn't it? It started two million years ago, the, the cooking process. Yeah, you're talking about catching fire. Yes. Uh, it's called catching fire, uh, how cooking made us human. And so the, uh, the argument in that is that uh, you, at the present, there is no alternative explanation for uh, the evolution of Homo erectus at around 1.9 million years ago, other than that they were able to 
control fire and use it to cook as well as to use the fire to protect themselves from predators and so on. So, uh, you know, the argument uh, is that if you look at the adaptations of Homo erectus compared to the earlier ancestors, what you see is a species that has uh, got a relatively small gut uh, and yet is uh, eating both vegetable foods and meat. And if they are not cooking, they would have to have a large gut to digest those raw vegetable foods. So the fact they have a small gut and small teeth means that they are uh, somehow able to get away without eating raw vegetable foods. And I think the only plausible answer is that they were eating cooked vegetable foods. And in addition, uh, they had abandoned the long adaptation to climbing in trees, as evidenced by now the fact that instead of having uh, ape-like shoulders that would enable them to hang from branches and so on, uh, they had shoulders like us, which means that climbing in trees is possible but awkward and not the kind of thing that you want to be able to do on a regular basis for sleeping. So they must have slept on the ground. And if to sleep on the ground uh, would be absolutely crazy unless you've got a, a good way of defending yourself at night from all the things that can bump into you, whether it's elephants or lions. In other words, they had fire. So, you know, I, I would never think about going in and uh, bedding down in the Serengeti uh, nowadays without fire, even though the animals generally are afraid of, of humans. And I think that's the way it would have been for Homo erectus. So I think that Homo erectus was the first species that was committed to um, using fire. Uh, that commitment meant that they were doing it all the time. They could not have adapted with uh, small guts, small teeth, and um, lack of climbing ability, unless they could guarantee using fire all the time. Um, so that would have a really interesting implication that so one general so because so fire there is nothing instinctive in us to know how to create fire it's a knowledge it is something you learn absolutely so does that mean that like one generation of them learned how to use fire and over the span of two million years they just they moved that knowledge they told each other generation by generation yeah I think that uh, that's right the, um, the practice of, of making fire has been so important that uh, generation by generation, uh, everybody has learned how to do it from the previous generation. Uh, and, and that, so we have relied entirely on our cultural ability to be able to be adapted to something completely vital. So you've got this you know, lovely two-way interaction between uh, culture and biology through fire. Because on the one hand, um, we have remained cultural in the sense that you pointed out, that we have to learn how to make fire in every generation. On the other hand, uh, it's been taken into our biology because we could not now exist without fire. Our biology has become adapted to it in such a way that if you took anybody living on earth and put them into the wilds, 
then they would die out. You, know, you would not get a, a living population. That, this is the evidence that we can draw from studies of living people and comparison with primates and so on, um, that uh, it is impossible for humans to live on raw wild food. So our biology depends on our culture. And uh, all the hunter-gatherer indigenous societies that we have records of, they all knew how to make fire. Well, uh, it is certainly the case that they all knew how to make fire in one sense, which is they know that if you can see someone else's fire, then you can put some fuel on it and take that fuel away and make your own fire. Right. Okay. And so that is a way to get fire. And that may be all that humans actually need because uh, even though fires do go out, hunter-gatherers are famous for being extremely nervous about letting fires go out. So, you know, I had a student who was, um, spent a few months with Bushmen in Southern Africa at a time when uh, they were um, living off the land. And every day what would happen is that they would wake up and uh, would um, put uh, dirt around their fire in a way that would just keep it smoldering all day. And then they would go off and forage and, and uh, hunt and so on, and then come back in the evening and, and just blow the fire up. It would still come back to flame quite quickly. But one day this guy, uh, his fire went out. And what, so he came back and the fire wasn't there. Now everyone else's fire was there, so that was fine. But oh my goodness, those women, they said, you are a bad person. You let your fire go out. You must never, never, never do that. And, um, and you know, I've heard stories about why it's so important. I've heard stories about um, Australian Aboriginals whose fire, who, who, whose fire went out because of a thunderstorm and died two weeks later. Because uh, they could not start a fire at that time. Now, the, the ones who in that case died out or died, uh, were old people who could not walk far. And what happened was that the party whose fire, they were, they were on a, a big trip, a big, big journey. And uh, so they were far from home. A big thunderstorm uh, wiped out their fire. And some of them set off. And they set off, and it took them a long time to get to a place where there was fire, but they got to it. And what it was that? It was a place where there were other people. Now this was in the middle of the West Australian desert, which is a huge un uninhabited area. And um, so when they came back to find the ones who had been left behind, those ones were dead. Wow. So that shows the importance of fire and it shows that, that uh, it's much better if you can make it. But the ones who were able to move it at all they did survive and because they could go somewhere else. And what um, the great uh, ethnographer of Australia, uh, Norman Tyndale, recorded was that uh, people would, would walk up to 40 kilometers uh, to go and find fire. And from a long distance, they could smell 
they could smell fire, they could smell smoke, and go there. And then, you know, the great thing about fire, of course, is that for someone giving it, they're not, it's no cost to them at all. So you get a huge benefit, but no cost. Sure, take a log from my fire, or put your log in and just let it burn. Do we know if the frequency of fires happening at random are sufficiently high to accommodate that kind of lifestyle? I don't think, I mean, lightning fires, you mean? Yes, yes. I'm not sure I've ever seen statistics on it, but I'm quite sure that they're not. They're, they're not uh, frequent enough. Right. Now, there are people who have suggested that at the time that um, around two million years ago, when uh, some of us think that humans were learning to control fire, that they may have been in areas where there was a particularly high level of um, fires starting naturally due to volcanism, due to volcanic activity. So humans were living in a very volcano-rich zone. There was a lot of volcano activity in northeastern Africa two million years ago. And possibly um, there were... Uh, lots of fires being started by volcanic activity, by you know lava coming out and, and just burning uh, in the local areas. But I think it's a reach. You know, for me, once humans have been able to control fire that initially maybe was natural, once they could learn to make fire from each other, then local population, you will never have fire go out. Because even though thunderstorms will come through, Uh, you will always find someone a few kilometers, a few miles away that does have fire and you can go and get it from them. Is it possible that over the span of the two million years, all the fires originated from one fire? Oh, uh, no, I don't think so. Right. I mean, that's a wonderful concept. But, um, but you know, clearly people did, did learn how to make fire for themselves. Right. And one lovely example is um, an analysis of uh, striation marks on hand axes. So the hand axe is that pear-shaped, uh, something sort of six inch long, that sort of thing, uh, tool that um, became uh, widespread from 1.6, 1.7 million years ago onwards. Um, and uh, continued to be used for uh, pretty much until Homo sapiens. And, and even now you can find um, hand axes in the areas that are used by some hunter-gatherers. Who knows how long they were carried on being used. Well, there were striations on these that people have interpreted as uh, a way to start a fire. Uh, that, uh, these are flint, and if you strike them with an iron-rich ore, a little lump of uh, some kind of uh, iron pyrites, then it produces sparks that are sufficiently hot and long-lasting that they are very good for starting a fire with. Well, uh, you know, so uh, I'm not sure what the oldest hand axes are that are flint and have had the marks on them to show this, but they're uh, in the last few hundred thousand years. Um, And so I think that's the oldest direct evidence of people being able to, to make fire. And uh, do you think also that use of fire for cooking allowed our brains to get so big? Yes, um, I think that 
that one of the consequences, uh, multiple consequences of using fire uh, is that uh, in making food more digestible, it increases the um, predictability of being able to get a regular supply of food. And it means that uh, there is the opportunity for an animal that has uh, relatively high metabolic needs to get those needs satisfied every day without endless chewing. So our brains, uh, when we're sitting around just not doing very much, our brains uh, use around a quarter of all of the energy that we are using to maintain our metabolism. So the brain weighs about 2.5% of your body, depending on exactly what size you are. And um, it will use um, something 20 to 25% of all of the energy. Every fifth hamburger that you eat goes just to your brain. Wow. And that's, uh, that, um, that ratio is very high for humans, isn't it? Yes, it's much higher for humans than for any other species. Um, and so this reflects the fact that we have uh, a greater need for uh, me- metabolic supply, energy supply for our brains. We cannot afford ever to let them stop because if you do that, you die. You know, we're not like computers. Computers you can turn off and turn on again. Unfortunately, that doesn't work for brains. Mm. So... Even at night, you're using your brain. Very interesting. Um, the the uh, humans are also uh, relatively uh, well endowed with fat. Uh, you know, we, we have a percentage of fat in our bodies that is higher than in any of our close relatives. And, and that's probably another way in which we are able to uh, have the luxury of a large brain because it means that even when we can't on any one day get enough food, we have the fat supplies to be able to mobilize to supply our brain with ultimately glucose. And, and that again may be possible because we eat highly digestible food. We, because it's cooked, we don't have to use a lot of energy to digest it. And therefore we can shunt off the excess energy into fat. Wow. Um, so what would you say? So I know we've touched on this a little bit, but what would you say are some of the most distinct characteristics of sapiens? Well, when you compare us with um, our earlier ancestors, then the typical thing that, you know, the classic canonical answer to that is, well, our brains have got a little bit bigger and probably we are just that much smarter. Uh, A closely related version of that is that we were more cultural. Our culture has developed uh, increasingly. And you asked earlier about religion. It's only in uh, recent sapiens uh, within the last uh, 25,000 years that you see these wonderful cave paintings that indicate, you know, certainly some suggestion of some pretty deep religious feelings. So those are the two ordinary answers. Um, And then a third sort of classic answer 
uh, is that if you look at our skulls and skeletons, we are more likely built than uh, our more robust ancestors, which most people would call Homo heidelbergensis. And it's true in comparison with Neanderthals and Erectus as well. You know, we are just a more likely built species. And a classic um, explanation for that is that uh, we were using our uh, increasingly inventive intelligence, our increasingly sophisticated culture, to do things uh, with tools that uh, previously would have engaged our, our, our brawn, our, our strong muscular bodies. So we were able to use our projectile weapons to kill animals at a distance, and therefore we have to spend less time actually grappling up with them close up, and therefore we can afford to be more, more um, gracile, um, less robust. Is it? I did say those three things because those are the classic ways of thinking about them. I'll give you a fourth, which I think is fully as important as all the rest of them. And that is the idea that uh, we became reduced in aggressiveness. And um, uh, the way I would uh, describe that is uh, we became more like a domesticated animal. We'll definitely get to that. Okay. Um so do you think it's possible the reason we're more fragile than other, maybe other species is that we sp our bodies have spent more energy in the brain and less to, for, into, the, into muscles and giving us bigger, making us stronger? Well, it's true there's a little bit of a trade-off in that direction in the sense that um, we do commit less energy to our musculature uh, to judge from uh, the way in which we have reconstructed the musculature of Heidelbergensis, Neanderthals, and so on. Um, but I don't think that <coughs> I don't think the logic works that we needed a bigger brain, we put energy into our brain, and we just put up with having more gracile bodies. Uh, if we needed to have those robust bodies, we would have them. Right. We get away from with them now, um, uh, not because we uh, simply can't afford them, but because there's something about the way in which we live, which means that we don't need the robust bodies anymore. Right. So it's because we don't need it. It's because it's not actively needed. We lose it over time. It's not that we, it's a direct trade-off. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and not to anticipate it too much, but I think, again, it's because we are a less aggressive species and therefore we can afford not to have to defend ourselves so well in physical fights against members of our own species. Fascinating. Um, so how do you think the roles of men and women differ in human societies? And I mean like the hunter-gatherer societies. How did their roles differ well, there's a very consistent pattern in terms of um, the daily activity, the daily round of work. Uh, and I say consistent, I mean it's consistent across all the different kinds of uh, hunter-gatherers from the Arctic uh, down to the, uh, the tropics. And that is that uh, the women 
produce the, um, or, or carry out the activity on which society depends on a daily basis. Um, and in the majority of the world, what that means is that they go out and get the ordinary boring food. They get the equivalent of the rice and the potatoes and the pasta. And the men go out and get the interesting food that um, gives life to the boring food. So those are the meats and the honeys and the, um, uh, the, uh, those pretty much cover it in general. Uh, so that's, that's true almost everywhere. Now, I said from the Arctic, and in the Arctic, something slightly different happens, which is that uh, the women don't produce food at all uh, in the extreme Arctic conditions. Uh, but what they do do is something almost as vital, uh, which is uh, they produce the clothes that men are able to go hunting in. So there's a slight difference there. Men get all the food, essentially. Um, and it's uh, um, meat and fish. Uh, and when I say meat, what it really means is not so much the protein that the muscles consist of, but the blubber that surrounds the animal, and that's all the fat that, that humans are just desperately in need of. So that's the, uh, the foraging round. Um, and then in terms of the roles of, um, of looking after the family, uh, it's very clear that uh, women have the primary responsibility for uh, the daily care of the family. And as the children grow up, then uh, the boys get increasingly into the orbit of the men. And uh, the boys are incredibly excited and in puberty when they are first allowed to do male things. I mean, probably they'll start out just making helping make tools and in camp and eventually they'll go out and foraging uh, with the men. So it's a very uh, gender structured society because the girls uh, stay in camp uh, until uh, they can go out and forage with the women uh, in later childhood or early adolescence. And uh, from a very early age, uh, they are the ones who um, do play parenting. Uh, so Elder girls from the age of probably uh, five or six onwards uh, may have a baby on their hip, uh, carrying the babies in a way that a boy would very rarely do. And uh, they're brought up to be mothers and to uh, do domestic work around cooking. And so the cooking is an interesting question in terms of gender, because both men and women cook but they cook in totally different ways. The women do the daily cooking. <clears throat> the women do the cooking of the daily meal uh, in a way that is expected uh, absolutely of them. So that if a husband comes home from foraging and finds that a woman has not prepared the food, then she would be in big trouble. And other people would not be surprised if the husband ends up physically beating the wife, they would say that was her fault. Uh, the men do the cooking uh, in the public arena when there is a feast day, when there is some kind of 
between family, uh, society-wide excitement. So they're hosting another camp or they've got reasons to celebrate within their own camp. And then uh, there will be some kind of, of public um, big fire, you know, literally maybe in the middle of the camp area. And, uh, and then men can get engaged in cooking. And typically what they're cooking is meat. And it, typically it'd be a big animal. Um, and uh, and then, then it'll be cut up and taken to the domestic fires uh, around each in individual family's uh, hut or uh, campfire and, uh, and then uh, further prepared there by the women. So basically it's, it's men are doing the, the public cooking and women are doing the private cooking. And uh, I heard you said the husband comes home. Um, well, how... How did the how do the relationships work? Um, is there are there monogamous relationships or there or like can one man can, can like is or there can the alpha male have many wives? How does how does those relations work? The, there is no alpha male, by the way. No alpha um, male. But no, but but it's true that there are men who are more respected more than others and who uh, are sort of ceded to in terms of their voluble opinion uh, more than others. But nevertheless, uh, you know, it's not an alpha male um, because an alpha male in primates is, an, is a male who can literally beat up and does beat up every other male. Physically. Physically, exactly. But that's not going to happen with, with right. humans. Uh, <clears throat> or if it does, there'll be big trouble. Um, so uh, are they monogamous? Um, yeah, in hunter-gatherer society, uh, most families are monogamous. Uh, and there are some societies in which very few men are uh, ever polygynous and therefore very few women are polygynous. Um, but there are others in which that's not true. And uh, the classic is uh, in the societies in the northern roughly third of Australia, uh, you find uh, areas in which most women are married polygynously. So most women are married to a man who has other wives as well. And this is married in the sense that everyone recognizes that they are married and they have the various wives have equal call on the man's um, resources and activities. Uh, and, and there you may get uh, men who have uh, a lot of wives, uh, 10 wives, 15 wives, even 20 wives. So obviously that creates a tremendous problem because that means there are a lot of men who don't have wives. It also means that there are a lot of women who aren't getting much out of their husbands. Um, so that's, uh, that happens in hunter-gatherers. Um, in the rest of the world, there's not much polygyny in Africa. There's a bit in some of the South American uh, sites. So it, it, it varies. And isn't it true that we have half as many male ancestors as we have females, which which means which means each each wait each man would would be with two female two females. The the ev the genetic evidence, as I understand it, is that there has been pretty consistent polygyny in the human past, but most of what that is looking at, uh, I think, is with uh, farmers. Oh. And I am not sure how much people have been able to apply that to 
lineages just of hunting others. Right, so it doesn't go far back enough to maybe... I, well, I should repeat that I don't know. I, I'm right. not sure. I haven't followed that work closely. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, no, my, my guess would be that it maybe dilutes so much because the, I've done a DNA test and they can only go back to 500 years, for example. They can't go any further back. Yes, yes, that's right. The comparison of a uh, number of male and female ancestors would depend on a lot of reconstruction, a lot of, a lot of calculation. Hmm. Very interesting. And are all the societies patriarchal? All the uh, all the prehistoric societies, or yeah. all the ones. Well, well, they're not prehistoric. All right, they're not. Okay, fair. Yeah, we don't know about the prehistoric. So they're just as modern as you and me, um, right? But um, uh, but they have retained a, a hunting gathering way of life uh, for longer. And um, yes, uh, there is a um, a marked degree of patriarchy in uh, every society on Earth. Um, you know, there are, there are people who talk about matriarchy, but sometimes they are muddling it with some other kind of matri something, like matri locality, meaning that women tend to live in areas where they're born, um, or matrilineality, which means you, that people uh, obtain some kind of um, uh, inheritance, maybe clan inheritance, uh, through the maternal line. But matriarchy, meaning uh, that women are, uh, as a group, in charge of uh, major sections of the society's operation, that never happens. Now, it, you know, hunters and gatherers are regularly called egalitarian. That is a concept that is uh, in all the textbooks about hunters and gatherers. And it's right in the sense that the relationships among men are... Um, not marked by any man being able to be the king who can order other, others to do anything. They're all equal. Um, it's not true, it's not an appropriate word for thinking about the relationships between men and women. And it's true that there's a lot of courtesy, there's a lot of you know, very comfortable, relaxed, tolerant, pleasant, um, kind interactions between men and women. But that should not blind us to the fact that uh, if there is conflict between men as a whole and women as a whole, men invariably win. That the religions are basically uh, male biased and that politics is male biased and, uh, and the law. And if, if you survey the law of uh, as small-scale societies like hunters and gatherers, uh, you find that it is invariably biased in favor of the men. So that, you know, for example, if you take adultery, uh, then uh, the problem, the, um, uh, the punishments for adultery are always worse for women than they are for men if there is a difference between them. And many similar examples. And why do you think in the modern world, women have been, we've seen women becoming prime ministers, presidents all over Europe, uh, in the West. Uh, what, yeah, what, why? So why have we seen such a rise of women to power if for most 
most of the entire almost entirety of human history um, all societies have been patriarchal well most of the examples of women being in power are in patriarchal societies i mean all of them are in, actually they're examples in patriarchal societies okay Oh, right. so like so, a, with Angela Merkel in Germany, you'd say it's a patriarchal society still. Absolutely. Right, right. Right. So, so, you know, for one reason or another, you get a structure built up within us, patriarchal society, which says, well, how do we choose a leader? And for one reason or another, they may choose a woman. And it might be because of some law about inheritance that means that, that uh, because of what their father was, they become the leader or because their husband Uh, you know, that's very common uh, for, uh, for wives or widows uh, to become leaders. Uh, but also nowadays you have democratic systems in which uh, the best person for the job is, uh, by whatever criteria, uh, may turn out to be a woman. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean it's a matriarchal society. It's not. Uh, on the other hand, We are getting a move towards some limited kinds of, uh, well, reduction in patriarchy, say, and to some extent, some rise in matriarchy in the um, Scandinavian countries and in Rwanda, where you have for the first time in the history of the world, political bodies, constitutional bodies that are numerically dominated by women. So uh, for about 20 years, you've had in Rwanda uh, a parliament in which you have more female members of parliament than male. Wow, They, uh, fully democratic. Well, uh, the not fully democratic, right. perhaps, because the president, uh, Paul Kagame, uh, he pushed through an arrangement whereby one third of the seats are restricted to being for women. Right, okay. But then among the remaining two-thirds, sufficient number of women have been elected in a democratic way that the net result is that more than 50% of the members of parliament are women. Wow. So it could be the first matriarchal society in the history of mankind. That's right. Wow. Now, I think you're right to say it could be because... Even though Parliament is matriarchal in that numerical sense, uh, the president does have a lot of power himself. Uh, so he he is a man who definitely you know tweaks the balance of power. And then, if you step outside that uh, purely parliamentary uh, context, then uh, I, I'm certainly not an expert on Rwanda, but I would say that. Uh, I'd be very surprised if you find anything equivalent in um, the law itself, as opposed to the parliament that makes the laws, uh, or in um, the sort of informal clubs that, that run society uh, within the capital uh, and, and all the towns, or in the village councils. So, you know, you, I think we're moving in the right direction, Um, I think the fact that we have patriarchy in our deep background uh, consistently does not rule out the possibility of matriarchy, but matriarchy is not going to emerge 
purely on the basis of one kind of institution, parliament in that case, uh, having more women than men. It's good, that's a huge help. Obviously, you know, hardly anything could be more important because they can change the laws that can help reduce the bias against women. Very interesting. And why, evolutionarily speaking, um, why do you think men men have become so? Do you think it's because of their physical dominance over women that we have patriarchal societies overall, or uh, is it is it something else? Well, I don't think it is just the physical dominance. It's quite true that men are physically dominant over women. And the degree of uh, difference is uh, greater than you might think, even just from looking at body weight differences, because the amount of muscle difference is greater than the body weight difference. That's because women have more fat than men. I mean, even women who are, are lean uh, have more fat than a lean man. And that reflects the fact that men have more, relatively more muscle. So there's no question. Men are physically, uh, in general, uh, very able to dominate um, uh, men, uh, very able to dominate women from puberty onwards. Um, but the reason I say that that does not seem an adequate explanation is twofold. First of all, if we compare our two closest relatives with each other, chimpanzees and bonobos, we see this fascinating contrast of chimpanzees being equivalent of totally patriarchal, all males being able to physically dominate all um, females and doing so. Whereas bonobos, uh, the dominance ratings of them are kind of mixed between males and females. So you can't say that males are dominant to females, you can't say that females are dominant to males. Uh, if you look at all the different individuals, then you might find that the top female, top individual in a dominance ranking is a female, and then the next one is a male, and the next one is a male, and the next one's a female. And they're just jiggled, jiggled about like that. And the, and the top one could be a male. So the reason I draw attention to this comparison between males being dominant in chimps and sharing a dominance in bonobos is that the degree of physical difference in body weight is the same. Males are as, as um, much heavier than females in bonobos as they are in chimpanzees. So there's something psychological as well. And that opens up the possibility that, that is true in, in humans. And I think it is true because uh, there's lots of evidence that uh, males are much more uh, tending to form large groups with members of their own sex, large political groups, than females are. So this gets into a sort of, you know, very delicate territory because, um, because women don't want to hear that there might be something about the sort of core evolutionary psychology that means that they are less um, familiar with, guided into uh, political success. So you've got to be very careful and cautious, but nevertheless, um, so taking all of the um, caveats into account, 
you see from quite an early age, uh, four, five, six years old, that uh, boys tend to aggregate into groups in which uh, they interact with each other a lot compared to uh, females. Uh, there are fascinating little experiments in which uh, you see that uh, even at a very young age, boys interact with each other, girls put into groups of the same number, uh, sit alongside each other and do things side by side. So the girls will each play with their own toys while the boys are all playing with the same toy. The girls may interact with each other in terms of talking to each other, but you, as you expand this kind of study, what you find is that the ways in which uh, human females and human males at any age cooperate with each other has this interesting difference that females tend to cooperate more intensely with fewer individuals and males tend to cooperate less intensely with more individuals. So boys have this shallow relationship that covers a, a wide group and girls are much more engaged with a few who they totally trust and have a really, really strong relationship with um, and less so with people outside their little clique of four or five individuals. And when you see this happening time and again at different ages and in different cultures, then it is certainly very tempting to think that there is something about uh, male psychology that is more driven towards this larger, uh, call it political uh, grouping, and uh, females uh, more driven towards this uh, more family-like grouping. Mm. So men might be might be able to acquire skills to uh, make manage or manipulate large groups of people from an early age as with uh, women it's more uh, a closer circle of people they that they engage with yeah and they, this isn't really well studied still but i mean here's an example of the kind of uh, psychological difference that might be at play and that is uh, that uh, in the competitive world of um, of politics uh, when you engage with lots of different people, you may have to put up with all sorts of insults, uh, all sorts of um, effects of some individuals uh, dominating you uh, in their particular field of interest. Um, and men, uh, I think there's some evidence, are better at accepting that somebody else is got it over them, is higher ranking, and um, that's just, you've got to put up with it, than women are. But women may find it harder to accept that someone else is superior to them in terms of members of their own sex. But the thought is that, um, that humans may be somewhat similar to chimpanzees in this respect, where uh, chimpanzees, the, the males have uh, dominance relationships in which when a male dominates uh, his subordinate, then the subordinate comes to accept that and uh, will greet the dominant uh, in a way that acknowledges their difference in relationship. Uh, and this allows them to have a comfortable, cooperative relationship together. Females don't do that in the same way. 
they are standoffish with each other. And if uh, there's a female there who dominates the others, then the other ones just tend to avoid her. They don't want to cooperate with her. And my reading of, of human psychology is that something similar tends to go on with humans too. That men find it easier to, um, to rank each other and just live without difference than women do. And this may give them an edge in the, um, that may give men an edge in their ability to form large groups uh, and uh, sort of develop a social structure in which you have this fascinating combination of competition and cooperation. Very interesting. Well, uh, final question. Have you ever said anything that caused controversy in your, or written, said, written anything in your field or, or amongst people? Because there is a lot of public investment in, in your field because it, uh, the answers it, it can give, it can sort of change the way we look at uh, our current philosophies of how politics should work, how we should arrange society. So, yeah, has there been anything controversial you've said? There are lots of controversies within the uh, academic area. You know, so we talked about uh, cooking, when there are some people who, who point out quite rightly that uh, the archaeological evidence for the control of fire is inadequate, go back to uh, when I think it happened at 1.9 million years ago. And, uh, and then argue against the idea that, that we were cooking at that time. So you know, there are controversies like that. But have there been controversies at the level of um, debate uh, in uh, the newspapers, uh, that sort of thing? I don't think so, really. Uh, you know, I've been always walking on eggshells. Um, you know, I'm very much aware of the potential for misuse of these areas, and, and I try to write in ways that are sufficiently cautious that it makes them probably rather boring from a point of view of, um, of the public. And the, the big area in this respect is, uh, is war. You know, so I was one of the people who um, were first engaged in observing chimpanzees uh, going out into uh, the areas occupied by neighboring groups of chimpanzees and making deliberate efforts to stalk, or wound, and ideally kill um, members of the neighboring group. Uh, and uh, so I wrote about that uh, with Dale Peterson in a book called Demonic Males and uh, argued that humans have got a similar kind of propensity and that we very likely uh, have uh, shared that with the chimpanzee lineage ever since we split from the chimpanzee lineage around six, seven million years ago. Well, I mean, that, that certainly has some academic controversy, but I have really emphasized that the fact that we have this propensity uh, to uh, take advantage of power to attack our enemies does not mean that we are committed to that in the future. And uh, I think it's been nice to see that that idea has not been abused. So, you know, that, that's good. I suppose the, you know, the closest I come to having 
views that uh, get represented in a controversial way in the popular arena is that I have emphasized the evidence that hunters and gatherers, you know, the way of life of our past, have definitely been associated with war. And there are some people who find that very difficult to take uh, and, and object to it and have written uh, about me and others like me in very aggressive terms. So okay. that is a controversy that's a little bit alive. We'll discuss all, all about violence next episode we have you on. It was great talking to you. I'm really looking forward to have you back on again. Okay, thanks a lot, Mohammed. Uh, that's great. I look forward to it myself. <laughs>